This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. For those of you who are in here, for those of you who are online, get your Bible, pick up the Bible in the rack in front of you, and turn it to Ecclesiastes. I hope when you tune into these online services, you do that with a Bible in front of you. I'm going to read it, but it's so much better if you read it yourself. So Ecclesiastes is among the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. It's probably just to the right of the middle of your Bible. It goes Psalms, which is usually in the middle, Proverbs, then Ecclesiastes. We're going to begin an expository series. That means we're going to go sort of verse by verse. We're going to go idea by idea. We're going to go right straight through Ecclesiastes. And we're going to do that for a while. We're going to spend the spring... And I recognize the irony of that. It's like if we've broken zero outside, we've, we're, you know, we're lucky so far. Yet I said spring. We're going to spend the spring in Ecclesiastes. This is a unique book in our Bible. Now you will quickly hear as we begin just reading this book like we're going to do this morning that this book is really unlike anything else in the Scriptures In fact, it's probably unlike any other book that you have ever read. So what I want to do is just before we read, I want to sort of point us in the right direction, kind of orientate us to what it is, because it's kind of different. It will sound strange to you. I, I, I think it will sound strange to you. So I want to orient us to what we're about to read together. So the first thing you'll notice when we start reading Ecclesiastes, it, it is, is not, I'll just say, chipper. Okay, this is not a chipper book. Verse 2 says everything's vanity. Verse 3 says that you will spend most of your life working, but the implication is you won't gain much, if anything, through your lifetime of work. After that, we're going to read verses about how the sun rises and it sets and it just rises again. But that's not like other places in Scripture where we say, you know, God's grace is new every morning. Praise God for the sunrise. This is kind of like, it's just repetitive. The sun goes round, it comes up, it goes down, and then it just comes up again. There's a circular, circular nature to life. Uh, another one, wind just goes round and round. Rivers flow into oceans, but oceans never seem to fill up. Life is repetitive, says Ecclesiastes. Just means it's day after day after day. And then it finishes by saying, there's really nothing new. There's really nothing new. We just experience the same hardships. We experience the same griefs. We experience the same tragedies as people have always experienced. And so in other words, you're going to hear, it's not really getting better. Life's not really getting any better. And now I know you're sitting there thinking like, hey, I got out of bed for this. It's zero degrees and I came out for this. Yep, you did. You're here. It's too late. You got up. You already tuned in. Don't shut me off. Hang with me. Hang with me. This is a good book. This is a really good book. And it's a gospel book. It's a good news book. So why study Ecclesiastes. I want to do this as we get going because it is such a different kind of read. So let me just give you kind of four reasons, rapid fire, why we study Ecclesiastes. Number one, it's in our Bible. 
This is the word of God. Just as much as Matthew or or Romans or Psalms, which everybody loves. And here's the sub-reason. Here's a sub-reason to that. The Bible actually sounds more like this, more like Ecclesiastes than you might think. Especially in wisdom literature, which Ecclesiastes is a part of, this is sometimes how the Bible sounds. Job is another book in the wisdom literature. It's about a man who has everything taken away from him. He's just devastated in life. And when finally, after God just crushes him, allows him to be crushed, he finally basically comes to to God and says, what's up with all this? And God's response isn't, oh, Job, I love you. It's, how dare you talk to me this way? That's in the Bible. That's, That's how... It goes. There are messy, dark psalms. For just about every, he makes me lie down in green pastures. There are psalms about just how David lays on his bed and weeps in turmoil and anguish of heart. Proverbs gets really, really graphic. Then you just kind of go on in the Old Testament. The prophets just sometimes just let us have it. With really graphic language. And so this is the biggest reason that this fits in the Bible better than you might think. Ecclesiastes not only sounds like a lot of the Old Testament, it actually sounds a lot like the New Testament too. There are parts of Ecclesiastes that sound an awful lot like Paul and Peter. And even the way that Jesus talked. In their own ways... The apostles like Paul and Peter, who had a large chunk of the New Testament, say they were like the reader of Ecclesiastes and over and over again. At one point, you know, Paul says, basically everything that I was doing in my life, I recognized was meaningless and was vanity. That's what we're going to hear in the first chapter of Ecclesiastes. Paul says basically the same thing. My whole life was about nothing before Christ. And then you get to Jesus, and over and over again, Jesus is in crowds. He's with men and women, and he looks into their eyes. They're men and women who share so much in common with the writer, the man in Ecclesiastes, searching for meaning, searching for any possibility of real hope. And Jesus just looks at people who are in this spot and says, I've come for people like this. So we're people that can find ourselves in Ecclesiastes kind of places. Jesus is for us. Jesus has come for us. We are the ones, Ecclesiastes type people, are the ones who Jesus came to save, seek out, and to bring home. So that's reason number one. Ecclesiastes is part of God's word to us. Second reason. Ecclesiastes keeps us away from trite formulas when we are confronted with the real problems of the world. Have you ever just been in the midst of extreme suffering or where you were working through some profound grief and someone who I think had really good intentions but just came and said, said something that sounded so formulaic and so overly simplistic that it just made you want to punch them. 
I think we've all been there. And one of the great things about Ecclesiastes is it doesn't do that. It helps us stay grounded because most of the real world problems that we face are too big for pithy little religious answers. Ecclesiastes doesn't take the easy way out. It enters into the hard questions. And there's there's an evangelistic component here too. Helping lost and hurting and broken people who are in need of much healing is going to take a lot more than an hour over a cup of coffee. You can't do it quickly. And Ecclesiastes is willing to sit down in people's messes. And we know a lot of messy people. And we're often messy people. So this book sits down with us. Reason three. Ecclesiastes teaches us to talk to people who haven't read much of the Bible. This book is is kind of raw. And it can be uncomfortable and it's not polished. And the writer isn't coming as an expert who knows all the answers. He's coming as someone who's searching. He's searching for meaning and searching for hope and searching for the way to make sense of life. And a lot of what we read in Ecclesiastes is the search, not the answers, not the conclusions. And as as a pastor, as I read this book, there's a correlation that I've recognized. I've seen it in me. I have to fight against it, and and I've seen it in in so many Christians. We can forget how to talk to people who are searching. And we can learn how to stop pretending that we're not. So let me just say that again. We can learn, and sometimes we need to relearn how to talk to people who are searching, and we need to learn how to pretend that we're, or how not to pretend that we are. Every single one of us still searches. If you're coming in saying, hey, I'm kind of done searching. I've arrived. I know all the answers. I'm all set. I'm going to call you a liar. Here's what raises my concern level more than anything as a pastor in our church. People who come in trying to make it seem like they have it all together. That's what raises my concern more than anything. I am not bothered at all when people come in in pieces. I get really nervous when people come in looking like they're all figured out because that's not real. I'll take the honesty of a mess over the facade of perfection any day. And that can be a real problem in churches. It really can. Too many people kind of come in front and they, they come in pretending that they're all good all the time. And Ecclesiastes can help with that. The writer's a mess, and so are all of us in different ways. The sooner we can admit that, the sooner we can let God get to work on us and we can allow God to use one another in our lives. So that's what this book does. Finally, fourth reason. Ecclesiastes helps us to know ourselves better. And when we know ourselves better, we're in a better position to know God better. I used the word better a lot there on purpose. Ecclesiastes helps us to know ourselves better. And the better we know ourselves, the better position we're in to know God better. 
The great theologian John Calvin called this double knowledge. Sometimes we can learn about the greatness of God, he said, by just looking intently at him. If you've ever read the book of Romans, that's what's happening. It's just the apostle Paul fixating on the glory of God and celebrating the glory of God. But there's an aspect to knowing God and to worshiping him that's born out of looking at yourself and recognizing that in our present condition, under sin, on the earth, after the Garden of Eden, but before heaven, that's where we live. We lived after the Garden, but before heaven, something of our true selves has been lost and needs to be recovered. Men and women were created to bear the image of God perfectly. But we're not doing that right now, and we're still waiting for that to be done. So Ecclesiastes is about teaching us to recover the true nature of what it means to be human. When we read Ecclesiastes, we learn about being human. So here we go. Let's look at Ecclesiastes. We're just going to start with verse 1. I'm going to read all these verses together. I'm going to stop along the way. We'll eventually take a bigger chunk. Let's just do 1-1 one, one really quick. So it says the words, <coughs> the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. This is written by Solomon. He's the son of, the successor of King David. So that's David of David and Goliath and David and Bathsheba. And this is his son who becomes king when he died. Solomon reigned over Israel at the high point for the nation. They are wealthy, they are powerful, and they are abundantly prosperous. They are the envy of people in this part of the world. So Solomon is a man, just to get a picture in your mind, wealthy beyond what you and I can comprehend. But all that wealth... All that power, all that prestige still hasn't made him happy. He's miserable. So that's why he's the perfect person to work this through for us. It's because everything that most of us think that we want, think that will solve all of our problems, Solomon has all of it and more, and he's here to say it's not any better. Actually, it's worse because he doesn't even have anything left to pursue. He has everything. And he now knows nothing here, nothing around is the answer. So it says the preacher says, the word preacher can also mean teacher. One of the richest, most powerful, most famous, most comfortable men in the world is in just the right spot to teach us why none of these things ultimately matter. So now we're going to move into this, but let me just tell you what you're about to hear. This was written 3,000 years ago. But what you're going to hear isn't just still true today. This is the same predominant problem that still plagues, plagues the hearts of men and women right now. What is, what is the point of all of this? That's the problem that we're, we're still faced with, the age-old question. Solomon is about to say all this seems really, really pointless. Life, work, the hustle, the grind. It all seems so 
futile. So what, what are we all doing? What am I supposed to be after in life? What are the things that my heart should long for? What are the things that they kind of does long for sometimes? That's what Solomon's about, to teach us and to show us and not just to answer for us, but to process through with us. So now verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Some of your translations say futile. Some of them say meaningless. Here in the ESV, we have vanity. It's all the same idea. Life as most people know it is missing the most important things. But I want to kind of open something up for us. The the teacher's words aren't as bleak. This is where Bible translation isn't always as precise as it might otherwise be because it's trying to stay rooted to the original words. This isn't as bleak as the Bible might make it out to be or it might seem at first blush on your first reading. So the Hebrew word here that's either vanity or meaningless or um, something like futility can be translated... Any of those words, those are fine. But it can also be translated breath. And it's used that way several other times in the Old Testament. So just listen, for example. This is Psalm 39. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths. And my lifetime is as nothing before you. Remember, I told you, Ecclesiastes sounds like the psalm. Psalms like all the wisdom literature. Surely all mankind stands as mere breath. Same word. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely nothing, surely for nothing, they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is mere, same word, breath. Now, sounds kind of bleak, but putting the the context of the word breath in there helps us. Psalm 144 says that the life of a man is like a breath. It's similar to James in the New Testament, where James says a person's life is like a a mist or a vapor. It's there for a little while, but it's quickly gone. So any of these ideas, breath, vapor, passing shadows, it's on Psalm 39.5, aren't meant to depress you. They're meant to enlighten you. Sometimes if we're going to speak about the true nature of life, we need to get raw and we need to get real. Your life, my life, in the grand scheme of things, is like a breath. Do you remember almost any of your breaths? They just happen and they're gone. So fast, almost without anybody, including you, ever even realize that they're happening. So let me tie this into a few verses, and then I want to kind of bring some stuff together for us. Verse 3. What does man gain By all the toil at which he toils under the sun. What does a man gain by all the work at which he works under the sun? 
So the preacher is coming at this view of life from a very particular perspective. And it's wrapped up in this phrase that ends verse 3, under the sun. This idea of living under the sun will come up in Ecclesiastes often. It stands in for just life, where we live. The things we do are done under the sun. But it's not just every way of life. It's, It's a very particular way of life. And as we read in Ecclesiastes, we'll see that life under the sun stands in for life apart from God. And this is the way most people live. And it's the way everybody lives until God graciously reveals that they should live otherwise. And I think that, <clears throat> I think that life under the sun stands in for life without God because this is exactly, in verse 3, what God told us life would be like without him the last time, just before the last time that people were really, truly in his presence. And that happened all the way back in the Garden of Eden. The last time that people really stood this way in the presence of God, God said that without his presence, because of sin, life was going to look like this. So it's punishment for sin. Just listen to what God said Adam's life would be like. This is Genesis 3.17. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Apart from the presence of God that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden, this is what life is like. It's toil without end, that never really seems to get anywhere, get us anywhere. And again, this isn't meant, folks, this isn't ultimately meant to depress us. It's meant to enlighten us so that once we understand the true nature of who we are and what this is, we're in the right spot to learn. We're in the right spot to see. We're in the right spot to recover our true humanity. If I just stood up here and said, you are the most important thing in the world. You are special and unique, and the world is yours, and you will make a grand difference in all the world, and nothing will ever be the same because of you. I'm not being honest with you. If I stand up here and say, your life's breath, so's mine. Generations come and generations go. I bet you most people in here can't even name their great-great-great or great-great-grandparents. You don't even know their names. Folks, the best way that we can understand the true nature of what it means to be human, of what it means to be people, even those created in the image of God, is to say our lives are vapors. If I just stand up here and say, you're it, I've done you a great disservice. God is everything, and we're like a breath. Now we're ready to learn. Now we're ready to see. Now we're ready to recover what it is that we are meant to be. So here it goes. Solomon's just going to lay it bare. Verse 4, and we can go now. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. In other words, 
folks, you're going to die in a, a little while, and your kids are going to remember you, and their kids are probably going to remember you, and then people are going to forget your name. The sun rises and the sun goes down, and it hastens to the place where it rises again. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around the, goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. Just going to come around again. All streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Keep that one in mind. There's nothing new under the sun. That's what we're going to build the rest of the sun when we get there. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already in the ages, it has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after. So again, here's what he's doing. He's saying that life seems meaningless because you're looking at it the wrong way. You're dissatisfied with the simplicity of it, with the repetition of it, and you're convinced there is something more, something better, something, and his word is new. We're going to talk about this pursuit of new. But the kind of more, the kind of new we usually pursue will never really change anything. And so he uses all these examples, but this is what he's after. People are, he, basically Solomon says, people are dissatisfied with the repetition of life. They're dissatisfied with the small place that they occupy, and they're always after something else. They're never satisfied in life with what they've been given. They're never satisfied in life with where God has placed them. They're always after something else. And so he says, people, they have kids, and then they have kids, and then they have kids, but the cycle never really ends. Nothing ever truly changes. There's this age-old myth that life is better for every successive generation. But Solomon says that's foolishness because things are basically the same. <clears throat> Yet with every generation, it's just full of people going, there has to be more to life than this. I've got to find out the secret. Every generation thinks that they will find the secret of life. Solomon says that is what is meaningless. His whole point in this is going to be embrace this. Because then you learn how to truly live. He does three nature metaphors. Sunrise, sunset, wind, and water. There are these powerful forces at work. So much more powerful than you or I. But even they don't really lead to any change. So he says, the sun rises and the sun sets. We know that scientifically happens because the earth rotates. Do you have any idea how much power, how much inertia is necessary to turn the earth? I looked it up last night. It involves an equation with 10 to the 27th power, and I tried to understand it a little bit by looking at a diagram and, looking, and, and reading somebody's explanation of a dad pushing his kids on a merry-go-round. Remember merry-go-rounds? Those were those, they, they were like a six-foot-wide metal disc at the park, and the kids would get on, and there were like four handles, and then dad would kind of get it going and spin it, and the kids would either go flying off and, you know, break their arm, or they'd hold on for dear life, and then they'd get dizzy and throw up. Why don't we have those anymore? Why don't, why don't they install those anymore? They were so fun. 
kids broken arms or throwing up. But this, the, the idea of trying to understand, do you have any idea how much power it takes to generate a sunrise and a sunset or wind? Or how much power is in flowing rivers and oceans? And even those don't really change anything. Here's what I want you to see. Remember, Ecclesiastes isn't like any other part of the Bible, really any other book of the Bible. It doesn't have straightforward arguments. It's not linear. Ecclesiastes takes up the question of what is the point of life and essentially says, instead of answering, let's just explore this together. Let's just start looking at it. So translating this vanity or meaningless isn't maybe the most helpful way to think about Vanity of vanities, everything's vanity, or meaningless, meaningless. I think it's the idea of breath and vapor. Solomon is saying, how do we live under the sun? In other words, what's the point of life? To start answering it, we need to see three things. First, life is short. Second, life is mysterious. And third, its, its essence isn't finding what's new. It's entering into how it's always been. So let me just kind of spend the rest of our time. Life is short. Life is mysterious. And the essence, the joy, the hope in life is actually into entering into how it's always been, not constantly striving to find a way out of it with newness. That's, that's Solomon's way to say, trying to find something out. He's, he uses newness to communicate that. And I'll, and I'll break that down at the end too. Life is short. Life is mysterious. Quit trying to find something new. Now, I know these are huge concepts. So let me just, just a minute on each. So life is short. Talk to anybody over 30, and they'll, they'll say, where have the, the days and the weeks gone? Talk to anybody over 50, and they'll wonder where the years went. Talk to somebody in their 70s or 80s, and they'll wonder where the decades are. Life is short. The sooner you can realize you're a vapor, like smoke when you blow out a candle... It's there. You can see it. You can't grab it, and it'll be gone in seconds. But the sooner you get that, the sooner you will be positioned to understand the true nature of living. Second thing, life is mysterious. Verse 3 says, what's all of our toil work really for? Now, this is really the central question of these opening verses. And in, in a way, it's the main question of the book. So that's why the, the next few verses just kind of ante up on the question, what's the toil really for? Solomon's not really ready to answer it yet. He'll, he will get to some answers, but he's going to process that. But here's the implication. The way that we think about work or productivity or even legacy won't make much difference. So we should probably start thinking about our work, probably start thinking about our lives a little bit differently. If rivers flow into oceans, but they're never filled up, Sun rises and it sets, but it just needs to rise again. What does that say about our lives? That we're going to work and we're going to try to produce and we're going to try to cultivate. But when we really ask, where is that going? The answer is not much of anywhere. So there has to be a better way to look at it. That's the sort of the mysterious nature of life. Let me come back to that one. And then the third thing. The essence of life is not in finding something new. Again, this is the age-old problem for humanity. Men and women have always been looking for what's, what, what's next. 
We've always been looking for what's new and what's better. Since the garden, that's what we've been doing the whole time. Adam and Eve were told in the garden they could have what's new, what's better, what's next, if they would only eat from the one tree. God has placed them in perfection and said, there's one thing I don't want you to do because it's not good for you. Yet they were convinced with the lie that things will be better. This is new. This is exciting. Eat from the tree. It's new. People are expelled from the garden. They begin to populate the earth, and they think, we can be like God. If only we will build this tower. It's called the Tower of Babel. If only we can join together and build the tower. We can be like God. We need a tower, and we will be like God. It's what's new. It's towers. They're what's new. David. We do this on an individual level. David had all these women. In fact, too many women. It was very sinful. But he thought, he saw this new woman, Bathsheba. He wanted his passions fulfilled with yet another woman. Even for Solomon, in his day, the people thought they had arrived when they built this new temple for God. Only to find out that it was just going to be a few more years and that whole temple was going to be torn down. We're fascinated by what's new. But here's the problem but Solomon is saying there's nothing really new. Look at verse 9 again. There's nothing new under the sun. Verse 10, people are trying to find what's new, but it's, done, but it's been done before. Verse 11 is the most poignant of all. What are you chasing? This is what it's asking. What are you chasing? Even if you get it, you either won't like it for very long, and you certainly won't be remembered for it. In C.S. Lewis's well-known book, uh, The Screwtape Letters. It's a fictional uh, correspondence between a, a senior demon, Screwtape, and his demon-in-training nephew, Wormwood. And Lewis writes, uh, Screwtape, I mean, it's one of Screwtape's letters to Wormwood, where he writes that children are born with satisfaction. Children are born Loving life the way it is, simple and uh, pleasurable and, and with things available to, the, uh, available to them. But these fictional demons who are writing back and forth about how they are deceiving the world and how they are working for the purposes of the devil in the world and how they are pulling people away from God. Uh, Screwtape writes to Wormwood and says, as people become adults, we convince them that there is something more they need in life. And if they could just have the next thing, then they would be satisfied and then they would be happy. And so what Lewis is getting at is this is a trick of an enemy. This is a trick of one design, designing a way to pull you away from God to make you feel like you're missing out on something, to make you feel like there's something different and something new to be pursued. But children have the idea all along. They're just happy with what they have. They're happy with the way things are. And that's what's vanity. That's what puts us into the cycle where everything feels meaningless. Have you ever wanted something so bad? You worked for it. You saved for it. Pursued a, a promotion and then you got it. Came along with a nice raise. You chased a relationship, you chased a person, then you got them and found out they weren't everything you thought they would be. Whatever it is, you had it, only to find out that once you did, it wasn't really that exciting anymore. 
If you think back, it wasn't that long before you became pretty complacent with it and you decided to set your sights on something else. Later, Solomon's going to say he tried everything in the world. All the ideas of what he didn't have, but he wanted. He will say, among everything in the world, he denied himself nothing. And it still didn't satisfy him. And we will do the same thing. We will pursue the things of this world. And even when we get thing after thing after thing, accomplishment after accomplishment, recognition after recognition, we will find that they still don't satisfy us. We'll find, in fact, that there's only one way to be truly satisfied. To Solomon, it was something that hadn't yet come. That's why he's pursuing it. But for us, the only thing that, was truly, that will truly satisfy was given a long time ago. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to fulfill the meaning, and the purpose of our lives. It won't be by looking around horizontally to the world that we will have our deepest longings satisfied. The teacher says there's nothing new under the sun that can do that, that can satisfy us. But listen to what Jesus says he has come to do. This is John eight twenty three. He says, you are from below here under the sun, but I am from above. You are of this world. Jesus says, I am not of this world. Jesus isn't from under the sun. He created the sun. He's from above the sun. In John 8, 24, the next verse, Jesus says that unless you believe in him, you're going to die in your sins. And that's true. But everybody who believes in Jesus gets to live with him where one day he says he will make all things new. That's the kind of new we're after. Not the trinkets of this world. Not finding value in things maybe like our job. Where we'll just have to get up and do it all over again tomorrow. Not looking for things well below the sun. It might distract us, delight us for just a few minutes, maybe even a few days, maybe even a few weeks, but pretty soon we'll be right back to looking for something else. You are meant to live here for a time. You should find joy in the simplicity of that. That's what Solomon's getting at here. It's not that the things of life are are meaningless in and of themselves. It's that if you're constantly pursuing something else, you will find life to be awfully devoid of any hope. But if you can delight yourself in what God has done and given you, and if you can look to Christ for new birth, he will bring real hope, and one day he will take you to the place where he is making all things new. But for now... Beloved Christians, beloved church family, we will do best if we will say, God, thank you for this now. May I delight in the way that this life is simple. May I delight 
to be here and now. And when you find yourself longing for more, don't long for more of this world. Folks, this world will pass away. Revelation says this world's going to be burned by fire. Nothing's lasting from here. When you find yourself longing, which we all do. Folks, I long for things of this world. I really do. I fight that, but I long for things of this world. When you find yourself longing, don't long for the things of this world. Long for the new birth that Jesus grants and long for the new heaven and the new earth that he's bringing soon. And then your life will have great meaning and great purpose because you will be on track for so much more. So much more than this world has to offer. Solomon didn't know exactly what he was searching for, although he's going to give us some answers by the time the book is done. But he starts out here. Folks, we know. We, we get to live long after Christ has said, I have come and I will come again. So long for that. Let's be that kind of people. Let's do that together. Let's pray. God, may we long for and delight in this life that you've given. And when we find ourselves wanting something else, may we fix our eyes on Jesus, that the things of this world will go strangely dim when we look at your glory and grace. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.